0: In the movie Places in the Heart, set in 1930s rural Paris, Texas, the widowed Edna Spaulding, played by Sally Fields, has a blind border, Mr. Will, played by John Malkovich. Mr. Will enjoys listening to recordings of the detective radio program Trent's Last Cases on a wind-up phonograph. In the prologue to each recording, a dramatic bass voice asks, Between what matters and what seems to matter, how is the world we know to judge? That is the question here, between what matters and what seems to matter. Between reality and illusion, how are we to judge? How are we to know? In this episode, I am suggesting love, genuine caring, passionate commitment as a second way of knowing. I still remember reading, as a graduate student in counseling psychology at the University of Santa Clara, Claiborne Park's book, The Siege A Family's Journey into the World of an Autistic Child. It is a story about, well, really it's about the whole Park family, but it is centered around Jessie Park. In 1960, at the age of two, Jessie Park was emotionally withdrawn and remote and unable to talk. Yet she seemed strangely content within the invisible world that confined her. The numerous doctors and specialists to whom she was taken consistently misdiagnosed her and were baffled by her condition. But Clara and the rest of Jesse's family, with amazing determination, courage, and stamina, all born of love, developed a greater understanding than the doctors of Jesse's problem, an autistic disorder not understood at that time and devised their own strategies to help her. Today, Jessie is a nationally recognized self-taught artist who still works, at least the last I heard, as a mail clerk in the place she grew up, Williamstown, Massachusetts. What is it that gave Jessie's family? greater insight than all the medical professionals with their scientific expertise? Love. What gave her mother, Clara, the the knowledge to devise more creative strategies than the doctors? Love. To what is Jessie's success to be attributed? Love. Not only my own education, training, and reading of sacred scripture, but my lived experience has taught me that the pursuit of love and knowledge are one and the same. Seek knowledge and wisdom, and you will discover love. Pursue love, and you will find knowledge and wisdom." I'm certain that everyone I meet, I'm absolutely confident of this, that everyone I meet is a mystery and that there are aspects and depths to their being that no one who does not love them can ever possibly get close to. Each person is a mystery. And God, along with all deeper spiritual reality, is an even greater mystery still. No one who does not love divine mystery, who does not love God, who does not love the sacred with a capital S, who does not love the true, the good, and the beautiful, as the ancient Greek philosophers put it, can discern the difference between the really real and mere illusion. Reason, logic, scientific methodology, and sensory observations, as I have maintained all along, matter and cannot be dispensed with. But neither can love as the path to real, objective, knowledge be ignored, and that, I believe, is a scientific fact. Abraham Maslow, the highly respected psychologist, suggested in his book The Farther Reaches of Humanity, An Alternate Path to Scientific Objectivism advocates and talks about a way which he believed renders more accurate perceptions and deeper understanding than scientific methodology alone. Maslow was not a Christian. He was born into a Jewish family in 1908 in New York, became an ethologist doing research at the University of Wisconsin, and then eventually one of the most important humanistic psychologists of the 20th century. So as a psychologist, and as a humanist, and as a researcher, I I believe his research with monkeys was in the area of sexuality and dominance. As a psychologist, humanist, and researcher, He wrote this, The classic conception of objectivity came from the earliest days of scientific dealings with things and objects, with lifeless objects of study. We were objective when our own wishes and fears and hopes were excluded from observation, and when the purported wishes and designs of a purported God were also excluded. This, of course, was a great step forward and made modern science possible. But, Maslow continued to write, I propose that there is another path to objectivity that is in the sense of greater perspicuity, of greater accuracy, of perception, of greater accuracy of the reality out there, outside ourselves, outside the observer. It comes originally from the observation that loving participation, whether as between sweethearts or as between parents and children, produced kinds of knowledge that were not available to non-lovers. Something of the sort he said, seems to me to be true for the ethological literature, the study of animals and their natural environment. My finding is that which you love, you are prepared to leave alone. We make no demands upon it. We do not wish it to be other than it is. We can be passive and receptive before it, which is all to say we then can see it more truly as it is in its own nature rather than as we would like it to be or fear it to be or hope it to be. Approving of its existence, approving of the way it is, as it is, permits us to be non-intrusive, non-demanding, non hoping non improving to that extent do we achieve this particular kind of objectivity now i th- i think this non demanding non improving way of knowledge of which As- maslow wrote Uh, is is an absolutely astounding insight when applied to the quest for the beatific vision. Think again of Copernicus. He makes his discovery when he imagines the solar system as if he were looking from the perspective of the sun rather than the earth and finds its beauty and wonder uh, breathtaking we might say that rather than trying to explain it, he allowed it to explain itself. In one of his sermons, which can now be found in his book, Shaking of the Foundations, Paul Tillich, the eminent existential philosopher and modern Protestant theologian, exiled by the Nazis to America prior to World War II, spoke of knowledge through love. His text for that sermon was 1 Corinthians 13, 8 through 12, which reads like this. Here's the text. Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled, and where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. 1 Corinthians thirteen, eight 8-12 Tillich's ex- exegesis of this text may at first seem surprising or even contradictory because we are used to thinking of it as an assertion that only love is permanent. But Tillich saw love and knowledge as intricately connected, as intimately connected here in this passage. While the whole of the 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians is primarily about love, Tillich noted that there is also another consideration in its verses, namely that besides love, knowledge is perfect and eternal. Knowledge in this text, Tillich asserted, is seeing truth face to face. Knowledge is seeing truth face to face. It is a knowledge arrived at through love. And which as a and which is as full of God's no, and which is as full as God's knowledge is of us. Here in this text, love and knowledge are thus united. They are linked, Tillich said, by one of the most profound phrases in this great chapter. Even as also. I am fully known. Fully known, that is, by God. Then it clarifies by saying this, but there is only one way, there is only one way to know a personality, to become united with that personality through love. Full knowledge, he says, presupposes love. Tillich's point could just as easily have been demonstrated using any number of other texts. Some of them right here in the Corinthian correspondence. For example, chapters 2 and chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians point in the same direction. In the same direction. So chapter 2 verse 14 but a natural person it says does not accept the things of the spirit of god for they are foolishness to that person and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned and then chapter 3 1 through 3 and i brothers and sisters could not speak to you as spiritual people, but only as fleshly, as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet able to consume it. But even now you are not yet able, for you are still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? And are you not walking like ordinary people? Among the obvious things I note here in this text are these one spiritual matters can only be understood by spiritual people and the spiritual person according to numerous passages both here in Corinthians and passages like Galatians 5:22 is one who loves As Christ loves. Two, the opposite sort of person, the natural person, the person in whom the Spirit of Christ is absence, the person who does not have the Spirit of God, is obviously one who does not love as God loves, and therefore can cannot understand Christian wisdom, or spirituality. Three. Those Christians who are fleshly, King James Version uses the word um, carnal. Those Christians who are fleshly or carnal, uh, there are there are three categories of people given here in 1 uh, Corinthians in the, in the uh, New uh, International Version translation, spiritual, natural, and fleshly. And this last category, those Christians who are fleshly as evidenced by an absence of love or um, a, a predilection to argue and quarrel and who have an adversarial and uh, competitive attitude cannot understand the deeper mysteries of the faith any more than an infant understands the world beyond its basic needs and drives. This indicates, it seems to me, once again, an essential connection between love and understanding or knowledge and has particular uh, application to the knowledge of God through love. Certainly, it coheres perfectly with both Michael Polanyi's and uh, tacit knowledge and Abraham Maslow's research. But none of us really needs to be told this. If you look into your own heart, if I look into my own heart with just a minimum, minimum of insight, I know it is true. Know that love, understanding, deeper comprehension, and knowledge of persons and things and events, and even of my own self, are all fused together. Love and knowledge are one. I'm intrigued by Paul's audacious assertion in 1 Corinthians one sixteen, where he writes, But we have the mind of Christ. As I remember it, David Hawkins says in a brief history of time, we are very close to knowing how the universe was created. If we knew why, we would know the mind of God. And here is Paul saying, but we do know the mind of God. The spiritual Christian knows why the universe was made. It was created by love, in love, and for love. So... Between what matters and what seems to matter, how is the world we know to judge? I don't know how the world we know is to judge, how it is to wisely determine the difference between reality and illusion. I only know that those who love know, and those who don't love don't know. I'll stop here for now. Stop but not end. Next, I want to think about the concept of the sensus divinitatis as a third way of knowing.